Welcome to the Nonlinear Library, where we use text-to-speech software to convert the best writing from the rationalist and EA communities into audio. This is Chris Voss Negotiation Masterclass Review, published by Vipul Nike on November 20, 2021, on Less Wrong. This post is about the negotiation masterclass taught by Chris Voss and more broadly about the techniques and worldviews shared in that master class. I watched this masterclass in April 2020. My post discusses some of the relationship, similarities and differences, with rationalist advice. These portions should be of particular relevance to less wrong and are part of the reason for posting to less wrong. This is a fairly lengthy post, so please use the sections to navigate to the portions you are most interested in. I cover a lot in this review. What is this a review of? Why am I doing this review? Worldview. Negotiation principles. Negotiation techniques. General concerns. What is this a review of? Who's Chris Voss? Christopher Voss worked at the FBI as a lead hostage negotiator. In 2008 he left to form his own company, the Black Swan Group, that offers coaching to people on negotiation techniques. What is master? Class? Master class is a player in the growing edutainment space, combining education and entertainment. There are 100 plus classes in master. Class? Each class is taught by a subject matter expert, the teacher, and it includes several videos, ranging from 2 to 30 minutes, usually 5 to 20 minutes. The typical video format just includes the teacher speaking to the camera, but there are occasionally interactive sessions with other participants, or other co-instructors. Course notes can be downloaded. There are also community features on. Master. Class. You may have seen video ads for Master Class on YouTube. What does this cost? A Master Class annual subscription all-access pass costs $180. A single masterclass, such as Chris Voss's, can be purchased for $90. How long is the Chris Voss master class? There are 18 videos and the total video time is 3 hours 4 minutes. What aspects of the masterclass does my review cover? The masterclass includes 3 live exercises that I do not discuss here, since they are more for demonstration purposes of a range of techniques. I also do not discuss the historical hostage negotiation examples that Chris Voss discusses, a bank robbery, the Jill Carroll kidnapping case, and the Dwight Watson tobacco farmer case. I also skip some other material, including discussion of bargaining, using the Ackerman model, that is outside of the main negotiation techniques. The class guide is 14 pages long, including a cover page, this blog post overlaps quite a bit with the class guide. Are there other ways of watching the master class without paying the subscription fee? You can sign up and cancel within 30 days to get a full refund. This gives you enough time to consume the Chris Voss Master class. You may be able to sign up for a free week. However, I'm not sure what subset of the videos in the master class are available. More details here. Are there other ways of accessing the information without watching the master class? Many of the techniques discussed in the master class are discussed online, including in videos from Chris Voss and others. I have more links for each of the individual techniques, so you can use my post to basically get a free version of the master class. You can also Google around for more videos and written materials on the techniques. Voss has also co-authored a book Never Split the Difference that covers these techniques. It's available on Amazon. At $11.99 for the Kindle edition it is considerably cheaper than the Master Class. MasterWiki.how can be a helpful free version of Master Class, but it does not seem to have Chris Voss's Master Class. What's the value out of the Master Class beyond the free material in and linked from this blog post? My blog post didn't exist at the time I bought the masterclass, I think in the absence of such an alternative, 
the master class was worth paying something for. In fact, I would say that the exposure to Chris Voss's ideas was worth the price of two full years of master class subscription for me, though I could have cancelled after 30 days once. I had consumed the Chris Voss master class. Now that this blog post exists, and given the great amount of online material, the value out of the master class is less clear. I think there is still a case for it, but it probably isn't worth spending a full year's subscription of $180 just for this class, nor is it worth spending $90 to buy it. With that said, if you find several other master classes that you consider worth watching, the Chris Voss master class could tip the scales. Given the ability to cancel after 30 days, it seems worth trying it out if you think there's a chance it will be worthwhile. Since rationalists have often spent $1,000 plus on FAR workshops and found it worthwhile, I think there's a good chance that many will find the class worth paying for, even after having access to the material in the blog post. Are there other worthwhile master classes? I found Daniel Pink's Sales and Persuasion master class to be similar and relevant. There are a lot of similarities and some differences between Pink's and Voss's advice on the topics where they overlap. Here is a good review of Pink's master class as well as some discussion of the similarities and differences with Voss's. In general I have found master class to be worth a subscription cost for at least two years, but much of it might have to do with the specific topics I am interested in. You can check here what master classes I have watched. What are some interactive discussions where these techniques are critically examined? The master class is mostly just Chris Voss speaking, with nobody challenging him. I like to see people questioned about their ideas, ideally with question that I have or would have if I thought more about it. Since watching the master class, I've watched several interviews of Chris Voss that I list below. Master the art of negotiating in business and life, Lewis House. Hashtag master class live with Chris Voss. The knowledge project number 27, Chris Voss. Why success comes from mastering negotiation in business and life, Chris Voss and Lewis House. Why am I doing this review? I think the master class and the material it covered were pretty good. Chris Voss's master class was the main reason I signed up for. Master class, and I finished it within a day after signing up. I liked it quite a bit then. Over time, and after having thought about its ideas and watched other related material, I continue to think the ideas are pretty good. I do not make claims about how much of the material originated from. Voss versus was learned by him from others, including the FBI manual. Regardless of Voss's role as innovator versus peddler, the stuff covered is good. I have already shared several tidbits of insight I learned with friends, but would like to have a public write-up. Of the ideas I learned from the master class, I've already shared several with friends. However, given that the master class is paywalled, I think it would be helpful to have a public write-up of the ideas that I can link to. A public write-up would also benefit people outside my inner circle of friends. I broadly think the less wrong community should be more aware of and engage with these bodies of knowledge. Rationality offers a powerful way of viewing the world, but there are also large bodies of knowledge around human interaction developed by others. Fruitful exploration of these bodies of knowledge can help enhance and deepen our rationality. Worldview. Outward focus. Negotiation tactics are mostly focused outward, they're focused on how to deal with the other side, known as the counterpart, not how to deal with yourself. A large part of the focus of rationality is inward, how to reason better, how to tame and use your emotions, how to achieve goals. Similarly, many techniques such as meditation and relaxation techniques have an inward focus too. With negotiation tactics, one's own goals obviously matter, but the goals of the other person are front and center. There are a couple of ways that negotiation tactics relate to inward-focused activities. 
First, in principle it is possible to apply some negotiation tactics in self-negotiation. Interestingly, some such applications have crude similarities to self-talk techniques, such as CBT or EFT. Second, in order to negotiate effectively with others, it generally helps to have taken care of yourself before that. The idea is that in a negotiation, the counterpart and the situation take center stage. If you're bringing your own baggage to the situation, though, it becomes harder to apply best principles of keeping the focus on the situation and making the counterpart feel heard and addressed. The negotiation masterclass does not discuss the first point, it does bring up some ideas related to the second point but indirectly. Dealing with people who do not aspire to epistemic virtues. The negotiation techniques in the masterclass grew out of efforts to deal with hostage kidnappers, and evolved to address difficult business negotiations. These people aren't necessarily irrational, but they are not aspiring to epistemic virtues. Pointing out their cognitive biases will not make them thank you for helping them achieve their epistemic goals. The negotiation techniques therefore can be quite different from norms recommended for rationalist cultures, where there is an assumption that all parties are aspiring toward epistemic virtue. For instance, tell culture can be great as a rationalist norm but a naive application of tell culture principles would contradict many aspects of negotiation techniques, though reconciliation is possible. One concern we might have about negotiation techniques is that they specifically rely on the irrationality of one's counterparts, and so would fall flat or even backfire in more epistemically virtuous environments. After thinking about the various techniques, I think this actually isn't much of a concern, as long as the person applying the negotiation techniques adjusts the mix effectively based on what is needed. Broadly, I do not think these negotiation techniques are what is sometimes called the dark arts on less wrong, though they probably could be interpreted as such. Later in this post, as I discuss each negotiation technique, I discuss what aspects or variants of it I consider dark arts why. Emotion-focused or cognitively-focused? While Voss gives a lot of importance to emotions, I think it would be wrong to think of the negotiation techniques as primarily emotion-focused. Rather, I think the negotiation techniques try to picket underlying motivations, some of which could be emotions. I think there is a moderately sound cognitive and epistemic grounding for the negotiation techniques, though the role of human emotions is very important to understanding how successful the techniques will be. Greater applicability to synchronous interactions. Many of the negotiation techniques are applicable to synchronous interactions, including in-person and phone interactions. In general, the techniques seem optimized for high-bandwidth communication with frequent back and forth. I found some techniques as well as some principles to have broader applicability, including to more asynchronous and one-to-may communication contexts. Negotiation Principles This section covers my own interpretation of key principles behind the individual negotiation techniques. The way I frame it doesn't always match how Voss presents ideas in the master class or elsewhere, and may not be endorsed by Voss. Show, don't tell, that you are listening and collaborating in good faith. A lot of the negotiation techniques boil down to a show, don't tell approach of demonstrating good faith. Many of these show s are constructive proof that would be hard to fake for somebody who is not listening and not interested in a good faith collaboration, examples include labeling and the accusations audit. Many of them also directly create value by making substantive progress in zeroing in on the issues involved. A key point, the show, don't tell applies at the meta level of your sincerity and competence. Obviously there will be cases where you have to tell the other person factual information or ideas. This is only loosely related to pedagogy's show, don't tell, so actions that are show s in terms of demonstrating sincerity could be show s or tell s at the object level. My thoughts on demonstrating good faith. I think this is good advice in general. I do think there are cases where telling works, but telling is much more likely to backfire than showing. 
So I'd say one must always show, but whether to tell depends on how much trust has already been built. It's about your counterpart. An important aspect of the negotiation techniques is to center them on your counterpart, i.e., the person you are negotiating with. Things like, be curious about what they have to say, be tactically empathetic, always show that you care about the impact of your words and actions on them. Let them go first. By and large, avoid first-person pronouns, so don't say what I'm hearing is, or I want, or I need. This is not an absolute injunction, but good to start with. Don't make the other person feel you are putting them on the spot. My thoughts on counterpart focus. While I think this makes general sense, there are important considerations of asymmetry here that deserve a more detailed treatment. I cover the asymmetric nature of counterpart focus in a later section. Slow people down and trigger deeper, reflective thinking. Often, in high-stress situations, people are thinking impulsively, defensively, and carelessly. The many negotiation techniques Voss teaches are designed partly to get your counterpart to slow down, relax, and think more reflectively, Kahneman's System 2 Thinking. This frame of mind is more conducive to solving challenging problems collaboratively. My thoughts on slowing down. I'm generally in favor of slowing down and thinking deeply and reflectively. This doesn't translate to being slow in absolute terms speeds could vary a lot based on context and familiarity. But I do think it's important to avoid rushing things and to combat the tendency for stressed, anxious thought patterns. Start low and high. A general theme in negotiation is how both parties perceive it and whether, at the end of it, they feel like it was a worthwhile endeavor. Starting with the difficult portions and gradually making progress to end on a positive note is important. Voss says that the last impression is a lasting impression and emphasizes that much of the positive messaging we are inclined to use to open an interaction may be better suited to the close. My thoughts on start low and high. I definitely agree with this. One of the things that makes interactions stressful is when people keep dropping bombshells throughout the conversation. This keeps the other side wary throughout the conversation. Getting the tough parts in the open quickly makes the rest of the interaction more relaxed. I also agree with the importance of ending on a positive, collaborative note. Negotiation techniques. Tone of voice. Voss identifies three kinds of tones of voice. Assertive, ideally never use this. Playful accommodating, use this when learning and collaborating. Generally, this should be used about 80% of the time. Late night FM DJ, this is a calm, slow, and firm tone used to communicate immovability. Use this instead of the assertive voice when standing firm. Generally, this should be used about 20% of the time. He also identifies two kinds of inflections. Inquisitive, upward inflection. Declarative, downward inflection. Inquisitive inflections are good when you want to get the other side to talk more. My personal experience with tone of voice. Since a lot of my communication is text-based rather than voice-based, these concepts have had limited utility to me. One general idea that I've taken from this is to speak more slowly, one of the aspects of the late-night FM DJ voice. I might also have reduced my use of assertive voice and increased my use of playful accommodating voice as a result of being influenced by these ideas. Some of the principles also carry over from tone of voice to tone of text communication. Even prior to this master class, I adopted a upbeat style of communication, sprinkling exclamation points and smileys in future drafts. I've continued with this practice. How dark arts why is tone of voice? I don't see anything dark arts why about using using a playful accommodating tone of voice. Does tone of voice have a place in rational discourse? Tone of voice, or tone of text, provides another dimension of communication that influences discourse. Using it in a good way seems consistent with the idea of rational discourse. Since a lot of rational discourse is centered around open exchange of ideas, the playful accommodating tone of voice seems suited to it. Mirroring. 
Mirroring is the technique of repeating about one to three words of the last sentence the other person said. Mirroring in general is helpful as it is a low effort way of showing the other side that you're listening and engaged with what they say. Mirroring with upward inflection, i.e., a kind of questioning tone, is helpful as a prompt to get the other person to continue expanding and elaborating. This can be helpful if you don't quite understand what the other person said, or you want them to elaborate more. Instead of the masterclass, you can watch a free Chris Voss YouTube video on mirroring. My personal experience with mirroring? I have not tried to use mirroring much in my life. My impression has been that mirroring is most useful as a low-effort way to engage another person and learn more about what's on their mind. It may be a bit less useful in cases where other, more high-effort and high-reward techniques, can be used. I used mirroring once in a low-stakes situation with success, a colleague and I were on a call with a third party who ended up not showing up, so we were just waiting for about 10 minutes. My colleague was just chatting about stuff going on with his work. I had no particular agenda in terms of information I wanted to know, but I also didn't mind hearing him, so I decided to try using mirroring to help show I was engaged without putting in a lot of effort. This seemed to work well. At the end of it, my colleague said it was great chatting, despite me basically saying nothing. How dark arts why is mirroring? Mirroring as information gathering doesn't seem dark arts why at all to me. Mirroring as a way of showing you're listening can be dark arts why if you're not actually listening. Somebody practiced enough at mirroring could probably do it automatically without paying close attention to what the counterpart is saying. The counterpart then thinks you were engaged in listening, because they hear your mirrors and don't even realize you were mirroring, but you actually weren't. To be clear, this is not the sort of mirroring that Voss encourages, he emphasizes genuine curiosity and interest. Does mirroring have a place in rational discourse? I think mirroring has a place in rational discourse, but a relatively small one. I'm much more excited about the other techniques discussed that are both high effort and high reward, including labeling. Labeling. Labeling is the act of providing a short summary of the underlying emotions, thoughts, and ideas behind what your counterpart is saying or doing. A tactical aspect of labeling, Voss recommends using it seems sound slash feels looks like, or you seem sound slash look like, before articulating the label, in a single sentence where possible, and being deferential in tone. It is also open to correction, see the next section, mislabeling. The use of first-person pronoun framing such as I think, or what I'm hearing is, is discouraged because you want it to be about your counterpart and the situation, not about yourself. Labeling is more high effort than mirroring, rather than just using short-term memory to remember and pick words from the last sentence, you need to listen to the entirety of what the other person is saying as well as tone of voice and nonverbal cues where applicable, and summarize it. But it's also more high reward, because it shows a deeper understanding, helps provide clarity to both sides, and can lead to real progress. There's a video going over mirroring and labeling. Labeling negatives. Voss claims that labeling negatives always diffuses them. The key point is to label a negative by accepting it, rather than by denying or contesting it. For instance, instead of saying I don't want to sound too demanding you say this is going to sound demanding. Or instead of saying. Don't get upset say it seems like you're upset. Instead of the masterclass, you can check out this video on labeling negatives. Labeling positives. Voss claims that labeling positives tends to reinforce them, the opposite of the impact of labeling negatives. For instance, you sound really excited about this or it sounds like you're very happy with the way this turned out. My personal experience with labeling. I've generally found labeling to be more useful than mirroring, particularly when a lot of raw information is being conveyed and it needs to be processed. How dark arts why is labeling? Labeling generally seems like a positive thing and not like a dark art. While labels could be misused, I don't see the potential for misuse as big enough to make labeling a dark art. 
Does labeling have a place in rational discourse? Absolutely. I think labeling is pretty valuable. A lot of rational discourse already follows similar practice, for instance, providing label summaries of what another person said is viewed positively in the community. The rationalist community also places more importance on self-labeling, something that negotiation strategy frowns upon, it's not about you, it's about your counterpart. Mislabeling. Mislabeling refers to the, usually intentional, or at least probabilistically intentional, application of an incorrect or exaggerated label to give the counterpart the opportunity to correct you and reveal more information. So instead of directly asking for the reasons for something, a mislabel might attribute a reason that's probably wrong, and let the other person correct it. For instance, if a person declines to do an activity, you may mislabel it as it sounds like you really hate doing this which gives them the opportunity to correct by saying actually the time doesn't work, I would love to do it next time. Brandon Voss, Chris Voss's son and business partner, has a video on mislabeling here. How dark arts why is mislabeling? There is a dark arts form of mislabeling, where your goal is not to get information from the other person, but rather to make them claim something that's beneficial to you. That happens when your mislabel is done with a desire to have the other person reassure you. Mislabeling, when done with curiosity, deference, and a genuine openness to being corrected, and with the goal of getting information rather than manipulate the other person into claiming something, seems good to me. Does mislabeling have a place in rational discourse? This is a little unclear. I think mislabeling is okay in rational discourse if the mislabel is still the leading individual candidate. For instance, if you have several hypotheses to explain something, and the leading hypothesis has 30% chance, higher than any other, formulating that hypothesis as a label seems reasonable, and it's probably a mislabel because there's a 70% chance it's wrong. On the other hand, deliberately choosing a low-probability hypothesis as a mislabel seems not very rational. Dynamic silence. Dynamic silence is the idea of just staying silent, usually either right after you mirror, label, or mislabel, or when things fall silent in general. The idea is to give the other person space to keep going on and to correct you. According to Voss, dynamic silence works best after you have established, through mirroring and labeling, that you are listening, engaged, and understanding. There's a video discussing dynamic silence here. My personal experience with dynamic silence. I have found dynamic silence to be generally useful when the other side is reasonably articulate. I haven't really needed to consciously practice it, it seems to come naturally. Calibrated questions, using what and how rather than why. Calibrated questions, also called open-ended questions, are what-how questions designed to both elicit information from the counterpart and start the collaborative process with them by introducing to them the considerations and challenges on your side, Voss calls this forced empathy. According to Voss, the main purpose of calibrated questions isn't necessarily to get clear answers, but to get the other side to slow down and think. Two of his favorite questions are, how am I supposed to do that? What's going to happen if I do that? There's a video of Chris Voss explaining these questions here. Voss is generally against the use of why questions because he claims that, universally across languages and cultures, it gets people defensive. When people hear why it sounds to them like you think there's something wrong, and they want to defend themselves against accusations. Legitimate questions. Another related idea that Voss goes over in the master class is to ask legitimate questions, and or raise legitimate concerns, basically, the calibrated questions that, if the other side were to hear, they would have to agree that this is a valid point. For instance, rather than asking how will you guarantee me that X, ask the underlying question which might be how do we deal with the fact that I am operating with uncertainty regarding X. Voss gives the example of the proof of life question that hostage negotiators must ask the kidnapper, he suggests a how do I know the victim is alive, rather than demanding a proof of life. 
my personal experience with calibrated questions. I have generally found the calibrated questions idea to work well, though I've generally used it more for information gathering than for forced empathy. Avoiding why in particular seems to make a lot of intuitive sense and I've generally found it to be effective at reducing both the defensiveness of the other side and the perceived antagonism in the interaction to third parties. How dark arts why are calibrated questions? I don't see any clear mechanism by which calibrated questions are dark arts why. Do calibrated questions have a place in rational discourse? Yes. In fact, I think the idea of using what-how questions instead of why questions has a purely rational basis, in addition to the reasons based on the emotional triggers that why could produce. Namely, a what-how question tends to be more constructive or specific. A why question is much more vague, like an injunction to explain yourself. For instance, if you ask why did you do X, it's a very difficult question to address. Instead, a question like what was your motivation for X, has an appropriate level of focus on motivation. On the other hand, a question like what events led you to do X, has a focus on history. By picking a specific aspect, it avoids the very vague explain yourself character of the why question. Accusations audit. The accusations audit is a comprehensive list of the negative assumptions, thoughts, and feelings that the other side is about you both things that they already might harbor and things that they are at risk of harboring once you start revealing the information you're planning to reveal. The accusations audit is then communicated to the other side to show that you're aware of the issues and also to get out in front of them so that both sides can be more relaxed and make progress. The accusations audit is a proactive version of labeling negatives, where instead of waiting for negatives to pop up before labeling them, you get out in front of them. Some of the remarks made previously about Voss's claim that labeling negatives diffuses them also apply here. As with labeling negatives in general, it's important in the accusations audit to not try to preemptively defend against or contest the negatives. The first step is to acknowledge the negative, and let the other side acknowledge your acknowledgement. In many cases, the act of acknowledgement itself diffuses the negative enough, in other cases, there's enough time after the acknowledgement to address the substantive issues raised by the negative. Chris Voss explains the accusations audit here. Brandon Voss has a practical video on the accusations audit here. My personal experience with the accusations audit. The accusations audit can be tricky without a good mental model of the other person. It can also be tricky to do if you have a lot of self-esteem issues of your own. I think a key ingredient to the success of the accusations audit is the ability to genuinely think from the other side's perspective, rather than project your own insecurities. With that caveat, I've found the accusations audit useful particularly for being able to start discussions that may otherwise not have happened. Unlike reactive labeling, the accusations audit can be started asynchronously and used as input to try to get the other side engaged. How dark arts why is the accusations audit? I don't think the accusations audit is dark arts why. With that said, a variant of it could be, where you trump up exaggerated accusations with the goal of manipulating the other person into consoling you. The key way to overcome that is that the accusations have to be the other person's accusations toward you, not your accusations toward them. There should be no judgment from your end conveyed as you describe the accusations. Does the accusations audit have a place in rational discourse? I think so. I think bringing out negative assumptions, thoughts, and feelings early creates the scope to actually address them in the interaction. No oriented questions. The idea behind no-oriented questions is to frame yes-no questions in a way that the answer that will make your life easier is the no answer. I found this one of the most interesting and thought-provoking negotiation techniques. For instance, instead of asking is it okay to publish this, ask are there any concerns with publishing this? Or, in a sales call context, instead of asking do you have a few minutes, ask is now a bad time? The simplest reason, as given by Voss, is that yes can make us feel trapped 
like we're being pressured or tricked into agreeing with something. On the other hand, no makes us feel freer and safer, like we have protected ourselves. I think there are a few other factors that make no-oriented questions valuable, that I explore in the next few paras. Chris Voss has a video on no-oriented questions here. My personal experience with no-oriented questions. Among all the negotiation techniques, I feel that the switch to no-oriented questions has been the one that's influenced my day-to-day -day actions the most. Part of this might be that this technique is highly applicable to low bandwidth, asynchronous interaction, that forms a large proportion of my interaction. In particular, the majority of my questions, particularly around getting consent approval for joint actions, are now no-oriented. While I think in most cases it doesn't end up mattering, I feel like it does make things smoother when it does matter, i.e., when the other side's answer is the opposite of what's easier for me. Do no-oriented questions have a place in rational discourse? Other than the psychological benefits of no making us feel more protected, are there other benefits to no-oriented questions? I think so, and I think it would be good to generally push more toward no-oriented questions. First, I think the act of formulating a no-oriented question helps us, as question creators, think of the nature of the objection challenge more clearly. The act of formulating the question itself therefore improves the likelihood of catching issues. Second, formulating a no-oriented question makes the other side more comfortable responding in either way, with a yes, i.e., the answer that makes life harder, and with a no, i.e., that makes life easier. By using a no-oriented formulation, you're signaling to the other side that you are prepared for bad news, in the form of a yes. This also means that if they deliver bad news, it feels more collaborative, both sides are actively trying to unearth the bad news and address it rather than hide from it, and less of a fight. Third, responding to a no-oriented question also triggers more thinking from the other side, partly because you've already shown that you are willing to hear bad news. Tackling loss aversion. Voss talks about loss aversion, he calls it fear of loss, and says that this distorts people's thinking a lot. So what do you do if the idea on the table isn't about a loss? His suggestion seems to boil down to framing it in terms of a loss by using the opportunity cost framing, basically point to the other side what I lose by not doing the deal. Voss talks about loss aversion in this video. How Dark Arts Why is Tackling Loss Aversion? To the extent that this is about combating and neutralizing an existing loss aversion bias, I think it's not a dark art. But to the extent it's about invoking loss aversion and creating distortionary fear, I think it is a dark art. A lot depends on the implementation. My personal experience with tackling loss aversion. I do not remember any situations where I consciously applied this technique. Also, I was already broadly aware of the ideas of loss aversion and opportunity costs so the marginal impact of the masterclass was low for me. Tactical empathy. This is not so much a single technique as an underlying idea that influences other techniques, nonetheless it's close enough to a technique. The idea behind tactical empathy is to demonstrate, through actions, that you understand and respect the situation your counterpart is facing and the impact it's having on them, of course, if you don't yet understand, things like mirroring, labeling, and calibrated questions help get you there. Tactical empathy is different from but related to sympathy, I feel how you feel. The goal of tactical empathy is to get the other side to trust that you have a good enough understanding of their situation that you can collaborate with them to solve problems. There is a lengthy video by Voss on tactical empathy here. You're right versus that's right. Voss says that getting the other side to say you're right isn't great, but getting the other side to say that's right is great. That's right is an acknowledgement by the other side that you've understood the situation. My personal experience with tactical empathy. I have not actively applied tactical empathy as a technique, but I think my practice has moved a bit in that direction after being exposed to the concept. How dark arts why is tactical empathy? 
I think tactical empathy can be dark arts why if you actually don't understand the counterpart's situation. It's still likely less dark arts why than false sympathy or false agreement. Does tactical empathy have a place in rational discourse? Tactical empathy seems closely related to proto-rationalist ideas such as Rogerian argument and the similar ideological Turing test. Black swans. The term black swan refers to a hidden piece of information that, once revealed, changes the shape of the negotiation. Part of the goal of negotiation is the, collaborative, discovery of these black swans. This can be thought of as one reason it's so important to get the other side to talk and reveal more private information, combining this private information with your private information can help unearth the black swans. My personal experience with black swans. I have not had any major success unearthing black swans. But I still think it's a valuable idea. How dark arts why are black swans? I don't see the idea of trying to discover black swans as dark arts why. Do black swans have a place in rational discourse? Absolutely. I think a lot of rational discourse is about discovering new ideas, and some of the more novel ones could qualify as black swans. General concerns. This section goes into detail on general concerns that I've had or that have been raised to me about negotiation techniques. This includes concerns raised from rationalist perspectives. Asymmetry between you and the counterpart. While there is a lot of homage paid to the idea of negotiation not being a zero-sum game, the fact is that most of the negotiation techniques are applied asymmetrically between you and your counterpart. For instance, let them go first, what happens if both you and your counterpart are trained in negotiation techniques and trying them on one another? Another way of thinking of it game theoretically, are negotiation techniques like defecting in a prisoner's dilemma, achieving gains at the other person's expense, but if both people did it, both sides would lose out? In one of his interviews, Voss addresses this in some depth. He says that he actually doest mind, and even prefers, if people use his negotiation techniques on him. He says, for instance, that most of his co-workers ask no-oriented questions all the time. He's uwus to it and doesn't consider it manipulative. What if both sides were using negotiation techniques on each other? In particular, what if both sides are trying to let the other side go first? Could this result in an impasse? Some more advanced treatments of negotiation techniques, including some parts of the master class, discuss this. Generally, if the other side is really passionate about wanting you to go first, it's a good opportunity to learn what concerns they have about going first, for which you can use mirroring, labeling, and calibrated questions. Ultimately, if there's something that's a deal-breaker for them, it's good to know that in a way that doesn't involve confrontation and anger, and that's what the negotiation techniques are for. So, whereas the fundamental criticism that negotiation techniques are asymmetric is true, they can be adapted easily to a symmetric world, and that symmetric world is likely even better for both parties than if only one side is applying negotiation techniques. Insufficient self-expression. The outward focus of negotiation techniques counters a lot of advice on the importance of expressing yourself. If everybody were busy negotiating, would people avoid expressing themselves? I think this is an important criticism and it's important to remember that in a context where the other side is interested in what you have to say, expressing yourself is good, because it's actually meeting a need of both sides, i.e., it is a coincidence of wants. Negotiation techniques are more the scaffolding you put around self-expression, they aren't about the self-expression itself but they help support it by helping create a safe environment for that expression. For instance, the idea of letting the other side go first and extracting information from them is important because, generally, only once people have had their say do they feel relaxed enough to hear you. Similarly, the accusations audit helps diffuse the other person's negative valence around you, putting them in a position to actually listen to you. Are negotiation techniques symmetric weapons, asymmetric in a good way, or asymmetric in a bad way? 
Scott Alexander introduced the concept of asymmetric weapons in two blog posts here and here. The first blog post highlighted reason as an asymmetric weapon that generally helps push toward epistemic progress. The second blog post pointed out several ways that the asymmetric weapon of reason could actually make things worse. A question about negotiation principles and techniques is whether they are symmetric, or asymmetric in a predictable way. I think negotiation principles and techniques are slightly asymmetric in a positive direction. Overall, if more people adopted these successfully, interactions would be calmer and more collaborative, and this would lead to better outcomes for all. Principal Agent Concerns In many cases, your counterpart is an agent of an organization or another entity, the principal. For instance, you might be negotiating with an employee of a company you are doing business with. The employee is the agent. The business is the principal. In any situation where the agent and principal differ, there is potential for a principal-agent problem. The bulk of negotiation techniques are focused on the agent, and as such, they may exploit the principal-agent problem to get good deals for yourself. Many of the examples provided by Chris Voss, including free hotel room upgrades, free flight ticket upgrades, and special coupons at stores, seem to be open to this criticism. I do think this is a valid but ultimately minor criticism. In most of these cases, the principals have already made a macro decision as to how much discretion to grant agents, and your actions are operating within the discretionary framework. For instance, if the hotel front desk staff has the ability to offer you a late checkout, that's because the hotel management decided to grant them this flexibility. That said, there could be exceptions, and I think as an individual you can decide choose not to apply negotiation techniques to situations where you feel it's exploiting a principal-agent problem in a particularly bad way. How much does this move the needle in the real world? The ultimate criticism is that this all sounds cool, but how consequential is it to the challenges facing civilization? Surely we can't negotiate our way out of AI risk. I don't have a solid answer, but here is a tentative reason to think this is important. First, improving the quality of cooperation in general, both in terms of the objective results produced and the positive vibes around it that make it more sustainable, seems extremely important for tackling difficult challenges. People like Brian Tomasic have written about the broad theme. Negotiation techniques done right seem like a good way to improve collaboration, coordination, and cooperation, at least at the micro level. The hand-wavy part is getting from that to macro-level improvements in cooperation, in ways that meaningfully improve the world. I don't have a lot of confidence in how strong that connection is. But I think it might be enough to at least give negotiation techniques a try. The magnitude is uncertain but I think the effect is likely positive. Conclusion Overall I am glad to have been exposed to the negotiation techniques and ideas popularized by Chris Voss. I think many of them could be valuable to readers on Less Wrong. Thank you for reading all the way till here, and please don't hesitate to share your thoughts in the comments here. Thanks for listening. To help us out with the nonlinear library or to learn more, please visit nonlinear.org.